Titus 1, beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 9, Paul wrote as he was carried along by God's Spirit these words. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. A lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Church family, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. During the earliest era of the church, Christianity was a marginalized and persecuted minority, as our Membership Matters class talked about this morning. Christians, as a result, were little understood and often suspect by the broader Roman and pagan culture. In this context, various apologies were written and addressed to those in authority to explain authentic Christianity and provide a justification for Christianity's ongoing existence. Of course, by using the word apology, I I don't mean that Christians were asking people to forgive them. Apology just meant at that time a defense, a justification for the faith. And that's precisely what these documents were. They were defenses for the faith, justification for the existence and the ongoing existence of the faith. Among these apologies was one written by a man named Tertullian. And Tertullian is right toward the end of the second century and at the beginning of the third century. He lived in North Africa, a place called Carthage. And many believe that he was an expert in law. There is some discussion about this, but doubtless Tertullian had received an excellent education as his writings Revealed. Tertullian knew how to argue. He knew how to debate. He knew how to substantiate the existence of something. Listen to the way Tertullian described some of the essential practices of the church. I love reading these documents for a number of reasons, not the least of which is learning more about how the church lived and functioned as the church. Listen to the way he described some of these practices. A bit lengthy, but I think worth it. Tertullian wrote, I shall at once go on then to exhibit the peculiarities of the Christian society. That as I have refuted the evil charged against it, I may point out its positive good. We are a body knit together as such by a common religious profession, by a unity of discipline, by the bond of common hope. 
We meet together as an assembly and congregation that offering up prayer to God as with united force, we may wrestle with him, that is with God, in our supplications. This violence God delights in. We pray too for the emperors, for their ministers and for all in authority, for the welfare of the world, for the prevalence of peace, for the delay of the final consummation presumably for the repentance of others. He goes on to say, we assemble to read and study our sacred writings. If any peculiarity of the times makes either forewarning or reminiscence needful, however it be in that respect with the sacred words, we nourish our faith, we animate our hope, we make our confidence more steadfast and no less by inculcations of God's precepts, we confirm good habits In the same place, also, exhortations are made, rebukes, and sacred censures are administered. That's church discipline. For with a great gravity is the work of judging carried on among us, as befits those who feel assured that they are in the sight of God. And you have the most notable example of judgment to come when anyone has sinned so grievously as to require his severance from us in prayer. In the congregation and in all sacred intercourse, that is, they were willing to remove people who lived in unrepentant, persistent sin. He goes on to say, the tried men of our elders preside over us, obtaining that honor not by purchase, but by established character but it is mainly the deeds of of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, how they love one another. For they are animated by mutual hatred. That is the world outside. They that put the brand on us, look at how they love one another. They are animated not by the kind of love that exists in the community of faith. He goes on to say, how they are ready, that is the church, how Christians are ready even to die for one another, for they themselves will sooner put to death for the sake of one another. Give the congregation of the Christians its due, Tertullian writes. Hold it unlawful if it is like assemblies of the illicit sort. By all means, let it be condemned if any complaint can be validly laid against it, such as lies against secret factions. But who has ever suffered harm from our assemblies? We are in our congregations. Don't miss this. We are in our congregations just what we are when separated from each other. We're the same when we gather as we are when scattered. We are as a community what we are as individuals. We injure nobody, we trouble nobody when the upright, when the virtuous meet together, when the pious, when the pure assemble in congregation. You ought not to call that a faction, but a curia. That is God's court. That's how Tertullian described the practices of the early church. Well, this morning, and you'll see why we began with this lengthy quotation from Tertullian this morning. We are continuing to ask and answer a question that we began to ask and answer last Lord's Day. And the question really is this, what makes a church a church? 
or what makes a gathering of people a church? What's the threshold? What are the essential marks of a church? And last week, we identified three marks of a church that help us answer the question. These three marks were, just by way of review, first, a church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. A church preaches and believes those essential tenets of the Christian faith. There are certain aspects of Christianity that cannot be compromised. These are non-negotiables. It's what it means fundamentally to be a Christian, one who has placed his or her trust in Jesus Christ and has come to know the one true and living God who is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Moreover, this Christian orthodoxy includes a certain lifestyle, a certain sexuality, certain way of speaking, a certain way of living, a certain way of loving. And so first, the church is marked by a group of people who preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. Second, we saw last Lord's Day, a church observes the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are two sacraments or ordinances that have marked the church for 2,000 years. When we gather, we observe the Lord's Supper in our case here at First Baptist Powell, we, we do it. It's our custom to do it once a month. We baptize as people are coming into the faith and into the church. Third, a church is marked by a group of people who practice church discipline. A church practices church discipline. This includes both positive instruction, which of course we're doing right now, right? This is considered church discipline. We're all, as it were, being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ as we sit under the teaching of the word of God. But it also includes a love that is willing to go to a brother or a sister who is in unrepentant and observable sin and call that brother or sister to repentance out of love for that brother or sister, out of love for the church, out of love for Christ, and out of love for a watching world. Shouldn't be lost on us that One of Tertullian's primary arguments for the existence of the church is right here, the purity of the church. And so these are three marks we observed last Lord's Day in answer to the question, what makes a church a church? Well, this morning we're going to identify three more marks, I think. Three more marks, that's the goal. Okay, but I plan on being around so I can always pick up where I left off, Jim. But we're going to aim to identify three more marks. I'm going to go ahead and give them to you. I was, I was rebuked last week for not giving them to you. Not really. I wasn't. But you've grown accustomed to me giving them to you, and I didn't last Lord's Day, so please forgive me for I have sinned. <laughs> three, three additional marks. And let's start counting where we left off. So this is number four. Fourth, fourth, a church is led by qualified leaders. A church is led by qualified leaders. Fifth, a church offers constant prayer. A church offers constant prayer. And then in addition to fourth, a church being led by qualified leaders and a church offering constant prayer Last, but certainly not least, a church exercises the love of Christ. A church exercises the love of Christ. 
Well, let's begin by looking at the fourth mark in our overall list. The church is led by qualified leaders. And throughout scripture, and you know this, if you've read through scripture and you're familiar with scripture, God does not leave his people without leadership. This is just not the case. He redeems the people and he provides leadership for and in service to those people. This gracious provision is especially emphasized in the New Testament. And so early in the church, what you find is is the early church, as the Spirit of God descends on the church in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, which perhaps we'll be looking at sometime soon as we walk through the book of Acts. That's my, that's my goal anyway. What you find is immediately this church, this young church in its infancy, is led by a group of people known as apostles. Apostles. And then alongside of the apostles, especially in the first century, you have this group called the prophets, the apostles and the prophets. And so the apostle Paul is able to describe the church in this way, Ephesians chapter two, verse 20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the church is never without leadership. Now consider Titus chapter one, verse five, which is where perhaps you are still. It's the passage we read a moment ago, Titus one, verse five. Paul writes to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. Notice, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the early church, I don't miss this, the early church was led originally by the apostles. However, the apostolic office was a temporary office. There are brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who study scripture, who disagree with me on that, and they can be wrong. It's not a primary issue, but I do think the apostolic office was temporary. I think it was. There are good arguments against that. We'll get to a lot of that. We'll actually get to unpack a lot of those fun items as we walk through the book of Acts, probably. But as I understand it, the work of the apostle was foundation work. As Paul says in Ephesians 2.20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Moreover, in the second century, as you're reading these Christians, so many of these Christians are talking about the apostles as if they were in the past. They're not talking about apostles as if they exist in the present. The early church understood that there was a transitional period of time in the early life of the church called the first century. And the spirit, of course, descended and God had called apostles and God did all the foundation laying through those apostles, including, but not limited to, the New Testament canon and writing the New Testament documents or overseeing, as it were, through their disciples, the writing of those New Testament documents. But once all of this was done and once the church was established and there were no more apostles, what you find in the early church and you find it already in scripture is elders are leading the local churches. Now, this is something perhaps you should be aware of. Interestingly, apostles also served as local church elders. Now you find that Paul served as an elder. Peter served as an elder. Even the language that Peter uses concerning himself is that of an elder. So you find that the apostles also served as elders, but the apostolic office was indeed temporary And so after, for example, Paul and Barnabas were traveling around and and they're planting churches, as they're returning to these areas where there were newly formed churches, we read of passages like this, Acts chapter 14, verse 23, they, that is Paul and Barnabas, appointed elders for them in every church, that is for the newly formed congregations. 
they appointed elders in every church, plurality of elders in every church. So it's this transitional time. Apostles are still alive, but they're short-lived. The last apostle will die probably in the 90s, John. And when he dies, God has not left the church without leadership. No, he's provided even through the apostles and through the apostolic delegates, additional elders in each and every generation from that point on until the coming of Jesus Christ. So in the book of Acts, elders led these local churches alongside of the apostles, for example, in the Jerusalem council, which by the way is a local church. Jerusalem is a local church at the time. The elders of the church of Jerusalem gathered with the apostles to arbitrate a dispute concerning the role of the law of Moses in relationship to Gentile believers. So should a newly Gentile convert, this person now who trusts in Jesus, who has a Gentile past, should this person abstain from eating bacon? And glory be to God. The answer was that God was merciful. And through the work of Christ, he didn't just extend salvation, he extended bacon. So Gentiles, of course, were not under obligation. <laughs> Sorry, I do enjoy bacon. We're not under obligation to keep the whole Torah as the Jews were obligated to keep it prior to the coming of Jesus. Not to, of course, offend any of my Jewish brothers and sisters who may still choose who may still choose out of freedom to abstain from these things as followers of Jesus. But it's a choice. It's a choice as Acts 15 and other passages demonstrate. And so these elders are making this decision alongside the apostles who also are serving as elders. As an aside, you need to know this. I'm less concerned about what a church calls its leaders than I am that the church has qualified leaders. So keep that in mind. We're an elder-led church. We use the word elder because we believe that's what scripture teaches. Scripture uses the word elder often. Now, overseer is another term that the New Testament will use time and time again. Pastor is another term that's used in scripture. And we're not gonna get into all the details, nuances of, of church polity, but I'm less concerned that a church actually uses those titles than that a church actually has qualified leaders. We also have, by the way, deacons in this church, which, of course, we believe is biblical. According to Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3, other passages, Philippians 1. Local churches never really existed in the first century without some form of recognized leadership. They just didn't. However, we aren't really interested that a church be led by recognized leaders. I've used another word. We're interested, according to God's word, that a church be led by qualified leaders. Qualified leaders. Now let's look for a moment at Titus 1. We're not going to unpack this in detail. We've done it recently, actually, 1 Timothy 3, which is a parallel passage to this passage. But just a quick glance, Titus 1, 6 through 9, where we find these qualifications, what does it mean for a leader to be qualified? Well, Paul tells us, if anyone is above reproach, that is, no one can justifiably speak against his character. Sounds similar to what Tertullian was arguing. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, 
Not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I take it, by the way, that the second clause unpacks the first. That is, children who are believers, namely those who are not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. They're in submission. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable. That is, he's to be a man who welcomes others as Christ has welcomed him. Shares with others as Christ has freely shared with him. This manifests itself through opening of a home or just going out and seeing others, sharing with others, giving to others and so forth. Having a welcoming spirit. It was even talked about recently. There's a kind of hospitality we can exercise on social media. A welcoming spirit. There's also something contrary to hospitality on social media. A man must be, verse nine, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, so my purpose is not to walk through all of these, each of these, although it's sure tempting to do so. But I want you to notice the primary interest the apostle Paul has regarding the qualifications of these elders. The primary interest, we could say it this way, the primary qualification for the church leader, in this case, the elder or the overseer, is the qualification of character. Christ-like character. There is nothing more important among church leaders than their character, their gifting, their charisma, their, quote, effectiveness, their rhetorical and preaching skill, their administrative acumen, all must take a back seat to their faithfulness to exude the character of Jesus Christ. It really is that simple, church. It's really that simple. We've complicated it a bit because, of course, we want to see, we want to see churches grow We want to see people attracted to Christ. But in so doing, at times, we've compromised the primacy of Christian character. And we've supplanted Christian character with talent and performance. And then I would submit to you that perhaps the product, the kind of growth we do see, may not actually be spiritual growth at all. It may be nothing more than the kind of growth we see in the business world when someone is just exercising administrative skill, rhetorical ability, or charisma. What we find here in the text, and we find it time and time again, God calls incapable people. Elders, you need to know this. He didn't call you because you're capable. He called you because he's capable of using incapable people to accomplish what is absolutely impossible without him. But such leaders, such leaders aren't simply instruments of sanctification in the lives of God's people. They are objects of it. They are being changed and they're men of character. And we say as a congregation, every time we recognize a leader, follow him as he follows Christ. And if we can't say that, he has no business leading the church. 
If the day ever comes when you can't say that about your senior pastor, may God give you the grace to remove that senior pastor. May God give me the grace never to become that kind of senior pastor. In addition, I'm saying much more than I planned on saying, which is why I have the freedom to maybe do another sermon. In addition to the leader's character, the leader must be a man capable of instructing in sound doctrine. It's really the two categories in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the parallel passages. On the one hand, a man of character. On the other hand, a man who's capable of instructing in sound doctrine. We could say Christian orthodoxy. That's the language we used last Lord's Day. And in this capability of actually instructing others in what it means to believe and live Christianly, he's also able to refute those who contradict. This does not mean that every elder, every overseer has to have seminary training, don't misunderstand, but he has to be a man who's able to handle the word of God. He's got to be a man that is able to come alongside of someone else and instruct them concerning what it means to live and believe as a follower of Jesus Christ. He's got to be someone we're capable of entrusting new members to or newly formed Christians to so that they can grow up in Christ's likeness. So a man of character and a man who is marked by the ability to guard the purity of Christian belief and practice. He may not have the rhetorical ability that we would like. And you know, on an elder board, you don't need that. You don't need 15 people all equally capable of preaching the word of God. You don't need that. What you do need, though, is if you've got 15 elders, you need 15 men who are capable of handling the word of God and who exude Christian character. There's an implication in this mark that I do want to mention before we move on because it's going to prove helpful as we wrap things up. And this implication of qualified leadership is often neglected in scripture and in the early church. Leaders are not self-appointed. They're recognized and appointed by churches. Beware of self-appointed leaders. Beware of even the well-meaning and sincere brother who decides of his own accord to go plant a church and he's not been sent. Maybe a faithful brother in many respects, but I would submit to you this should give us pause. And any time we have a conversation with someone about starting a new church, one of the questions we need to ask is who sent you? Who knows you well enough to validate your character and to validate the message you preach. That's what matters. We're not, we're not individuals as leaders. We are linked throughout history all the way back to Jesus Christ himself as one generation passes on the gospel to the next generation. So we should pause when someone decides of their own volition to go out and start a church without having been sent. We'll come full circle here, I think, in just a bit, perhaps another week. Fifth, fifth, The fifth mark of a church I'd like to point out to you is a church offers constant prayer. A church offers constant prayer. Acts chapter two, verse 42, which is a passage we read last Lord's Day, describes the early church. And it describes the early church as continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
the fellowship, and we're going to come back to this. I can't wait to preach this text. The definite article is used every time. The apostles teaching. The fellowship. The breaking of bread. And the prayers, plural. In fact, the book of Acts begins with a prayer meeting, by the way. It begins with a prayer meeting. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, a a letter that abounds with instruction for Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus to function as a church, Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, he says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Prayer must characterize the church. It must mark the church. Constant prayer, like breathing, it ought to characterize the church. Listen to how one early Christian leader, a man by the name of Justin Martyr, who's named Justin Martyr because he was eventually martyred for the faith. He described the church in the middle of the second century. We can't get out of the second century this morning, I guess. He wrote these words in his first apology, another apology. On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets are read. As long as time permits, we read them as long as we can, you know, sometimes more than others. Perhaps they weren't as time constrained as we are, you know. Then when the reader has ceased, I love this, the president verbally instructs, he calls him the president. He probably means something like a senior pastor. And exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Then we all rise together and pray. And as we before said, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president, in like manner, offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people assent, saying, amen. There's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. And to those who are absent, a portion is sent by the deacons. The deacons then take part of this feast, which is, of course, part of the Lord's Supper, and they take it to those that couldn't be there. And notice that prayer characterizes these early assemblies. When they get together, God's people are praying. When, when the senior pastor stands up to preach the word of God, he prays. It's prayerful. He opens in prayer, or he continues in prayer, or he closes in prayer. There's this constant dependence on the Lord in prayer. And that's precisely what prayer is, church. Prayer is the constant recognition that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor to build it labor in vain. Like nothing else, right? Like nothing else. Prayer is the one time where we're doing nothing but calling on God to do everything. That's it. It's the time when we recognize not by might, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's what prayer is. Now, there are many forms, and we're going to see this again. So much of what we're talking about here, interestingly, we're going to unpack at length in the book of Acts. Because if you find anything throughout the book of Acts, it's a people praying. A people who are committed to those items we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and prayer is one of those items. But there are many forms or avenues that prayer can take, many forms and avenues. I mean, for example, a prayer meeting is one of those forms. 
But even the nature of the prayer meeting can take different shapes and it has throughout church history. And so there are more organized prayer meetings. There are less organized prayer meetings. Now we have the privilege here at First Baptist Powell. We've started once a month during our fourth Sunday evening service to focus that service around prayer. I'd encourage you, by the way, if you're not a part of that service, prioritize it. Prioritize it. We sing songs to the Lord together as forms of prayer, but we break up into groups and we share requests and we pray together and we bear one another's burdens and we call upon God to continue to bless this church, to lead this church, to lead these elders, to lead the senior pastor, so on and so forth, to extend the gospel to the Powell area and throughout East Tennessee and beyond. We gather together to do nothing but ask God to do everything. So prioritize that. That's one of the forms it takes. Another form it may take is more of an informal time of prayer. I have the privilege, actually, I've got some brothers that have invited me to participate in a time of prayer. It's just a few of us that gather together Lord's Day morning. So every Sunday morning we do this. And uh, these brothers have been instruments encouraging prayer in my life. And, And we gather together to pray. We pray for a number of things. Some of it's personal Some of it is that the senior pastor would speak the word of God. I'm thankful for that time of prayer. We pray for Pastor Brett. We pray for those who are up here on stage who are helping lead our congregational time of worship and so forth. We pray that God's kingdom would come, his will would be done in First Baptist Powell as in heaven. So these are different forms. We open our service as a church with a prayer of invocation We're just calling on the Lord knowing that we're here because of him. That's it. We're here because of him. And isn't it true that prayer often has more to do with what God is doing in us than what we're asking God to do outside of us? So we offer this prayer of invocation. We spend time praying during our confession together. We pray during our time of thanksgiving as Pastor Adam led us in a time of prayer a moment ago, beginning with a Puritan prayer. I love that. A little too modern for me, brother, but I do love the Puritans. (laughs) I have the privilege each week of praying at the conclusion of the sermon, just again as a reminder, Lord, may may your word find good soil. If I've said anything that was wrong, eliminate it. Correct me. Be honored. A number of things we could talk about here. Prayer as a central and constant activity marks what it means for the church to function as a church. It always has. It always will. I do want to say, before we move on to our third point, maybe, depending on how long it takes me to say this, there are periods of time throughout church history when there is a concentrated effort to pray. That's the case. We can, we can map that historically, Um, We we even see it, I think actually we'll talk about this in the book of Acts. We see that in Acts. There is something unique God is doing, but it's not simply for the first century. Much of what God is doing in the first century extends throughout church history in God's goodness. But but it is a unique time and we'll talk about all that soon. Uh, We see this also with the Great Awakening. There were specially called prayer meetings. In fact, even in our tradition, the Baptist tradition, the English Baptist tradition, there was a special call to pray in the second half of the 18th century. Special call to pray. And uh, they met monthly, interestingly. They met monthly to pray. 
And there are so many letters that were written about what God had done through that prayer meeting to bring about what eventually became a kind of revival or restoration of the Baptist movement and Baptist churches and then beyond Baptist churches through that time of prayer. So there are these seasons where we give ourselves to a concentrated time of calling on the name of the Lord together. However, prayer is to be constant in the life and the ministry of the church. It isn't to come and go. It's to form the very heartbeat of the church. Again, recognizing that God must do it, we can't. And we'll come back to all that in the book of Acts and I look forward to doing that. So first, we've seen a church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. Second, a church observes the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Third, a church practices church discipline for the purity of the church out of love for its members. Fourth, a church is led by qualified leaders. Fifth, a church offers constant prayer and we will close, I think, with this one. Sixth, a church exercises the love of Christ church exercises the love of Christ. I simply could not talk about the marks of a church without talking about the mark that Jesus said would identify his disciples. I couldn't do it. I I don't think I should do it. Love is so central to being a functioning church that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, the aim, that's, that's tatelos, The goal, the purpose of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Don't miss that. The goal of a systematic theology class is love. The goal of biblical exposition week after week after week is love. So much so that if we're experiencing all these other items, these instruments for the purpose of cultivating love, like teaching theology, teaching sound doctrine, exposing the word of God, so on and so forth, if we're doing all of that, but love is not being cultivated in our hearts, we're missing something. And we need to go back, I think, and ask the question, are we really, are we really doing what God has called us to do? Are we really getting the theological realities that we're learning in class? Are we really listening to, preaching the word of God as, as we find it in scripture? In John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus exhorts us in this way, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment. It's new in some ways and not in others. That you love one another. That's not new. That you love one another just as I have loved you. That's new. So love one another as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples first, Baptist Powell, if you have love for one another. I mean, Tertullian is able to say as he writes to pagan leaders, you know us by our love, don't you? May I be so bold as to say we can't say that as the American church? I'm not convinced we can. Which may tell us something about the nature of the church. With great confidence that God is doing what he's always done, but that over time, perhaps, 
We've compromised the purity of the church, the message of the church, the foundation of the church. What a reminder. And love is the necessary product of being the church, really, isn't it? Love marks the presence of those who know Christ and therefore marks the presence of the church. And as Jesus tells us, this love is not first a love that comes from us, it's a love that comes to us in Christ. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, if we're not exuding love to a watching world, if we're not exuding love to one another in front of a watching world, perhaps love has not come to us. Or we need to revisit the way in which love has come to us. Meditate on this way, repent of our ways, and live according to the love of God in Christ. Jesus commands us to love one another as I have loved you. The love that God has shown us in Christ becomes the love we freely give to others. Friends, if I may exhort you, you cannot give to others what you have not first received. I know this as a father. I cannot take my children where I am not going first. It's one of the reasons why sending our kids to church and not taking them to church has been entirely ineffective. Same thing, same reality with reference to the love we're called to show others. You cannot show the love of God to others unless you've received the love God has for you in Christ. It's impossible. John actually will call it, 1 John chapter 4, being born of God. (laughs) Unless you're born of God, reborn, born again from above, to use John's language in John 3, you cannot show this kind of love to others. The love God has for you was shown when Christ, the incarnate Son of God, died in your place and for your sins. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God has so loved you, you ought also to love one another. Hear the logic? That's love. The cross shows us the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. The empty tomb, Christ conquering sin, death, and hell by means of bodily resurrection from the dead. This shows us the love God has for us, but you will never be able to give that kind of love to anyone else unless you embrace Jesus Christ in trust and faith. So I would ask of you this morning to reflect personally, do you know this love? Have you received this love? Have you embraced this love? Are you resting in this love, the love God has for you first? And if not, we would love to visit with you. If you are struggling with that question, perhaps, as I have from time to time as a follower of Jesus, we'd love to visit with you about what this love looks like, how we might be sure we have come to know this love, and then how we can exude this love to a watching world. You can gather with us right after the service as you take a left in one of these, from one of these doors, rather. And on the right-hand side out there, there's a room called the Crossroads. I mentioned it earlier. Gather with us and ask all the questions you'd like. And we want to come alongside of you and you alongside of us as we seek to know and serve the God who is love and has shown himself as loving through Jesus Christ. Well, what does this love look like in practice? 
1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You can jot that down. We're not going to unpack it in detail. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. But Paul writes these words, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. You hear that? Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christian love is not compromising truth. It rejoices with the truth. So Christian love is not compromising the truth of the gospel. It's not compromising the word of God. It's not compromising the veracity of scripture or any tenet of the Christian faith for that matter. It is possible. It is possible to compromise God's word in the name of love. But that's not loving according to God's word. It's not loving according to Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 13. However, I want you to notice in 1 Corinthians 13, love is described less in terms of what we do and speak and more in terms of how and why we do and speak. It is what, right? The truth is loving, but it's possible to speak the truth rudely. Right? That's possible. I mean, there have been times in my life when I've offended someone, and sometimes in those moments I've thought, well, it's because of the gospel. They're offended because of the gospel. But there have been other times when I've thought, you know what? They're not offended because of the gospel. They're offended because I'm a jerk. That happens, doesn't it? It happens. So it's possible It's possible to communicate truth impatiently. It's possible to communicate truth unkindly. It's possible to speak the gospel arrogantly and rudely. It's possible to proclaim Christ resentfully. And that's not loving. Now, praise the Lord, he still uses those moments. Praise God. Even the Apostle Paul was able to rejoice at others who were preaching the gospel with wrong motives but Paul would describe such a person in 1 Corinthians 13 as doing so in a way that's unloving. And yet God, of course, still has the victory and he still uses broken people. But I just wanted to make you aware of this because I I just don't think we can say it enough. Not compromising the truth. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Please, standing firmly in the veracity of scripture, firmly in Christian orthodoxy, unwavering concerning the tenets of the faith, willing to lay down our life for the truths that Christ has entrusted to us, the deposit or the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. But it's possible that in our heated political climate, Our heated political climate has effectively modeled for us something that is unloving. Speaking our mind rudely and hatefully, running roughshod over people. It's possible that as Christians we fall and pray to the same truth speaking. 
May God forgive us when we follow suit after the world. Well, we got to close, don't we? We don't have to close, but you need to eat at some point. We began these two weeks on the distinguishing marks of a church. And we began with two stories. I want to close with these two stories. And we still may not be done with this series. There's one more item that's percolating, and we'll see what happens. In one story we began with last week, a young seminarian named Tate had become so disillusioned by weaknesses in the churches he had visited over a period of four years that he and his family finally decided to start their own church. And in the end, their church, as they called it, was composed of Tate, his wife, and his children. God love them. We asked the question, is this a church? And then there was a second story. Remember this? Second illustration. If you're with us last Lord's Day, you can go back and listen if you weren't. In the second story, there was a Baptist church, pastor by Pastor Bill, made up the name. Okay, so don't think of a pastor named Pastor Bill, please. And Pastor Bill had over time arrived at the point at which he affirmed, and then eventually the church began affirming homosexual relationships and a fluid view of gender. And we asked a similar question, is this still a church? While the answer to that question, depending on the context, is not always tidy, both of these examples are contrary to what we find worthy of the name church. They're both contrary to what we find in scripture and church history concerning what a church really is. Tate's gathered family lacks biblically qualified and recognized leaders. We would ask Tate, who sent you? Moreover, they lack any ability to practice church discipline in a meaningful sense. That would be odd, wouldn't it? Tate's going to bring his wife, or his wife's going to bring Tate, or they're going to bring one of their children. You see, it, it empties the church of one of its essential marks. You can't practice church discipline when it's just a family gathering. A biological family, that is, or adopted family. In the second example, the Baptist church that is affirming the LGBTQ plus movement, this church, quote unquote, is affirming a view that contradicts classic Christian orthodoxy. And there are rooms in our culture where if I made that statement, I would be run out of the room I hope I can say these kinds of things with the kind of love Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 that is indeed gentle. It's not rude. It's not arrogant. It's not boastful. But does rejoice with the truth. While believers may at times be present among such groups for seasons, these groups have forfeited their status of being a church. And we can't mince words about this. First Baptist Church of Powell, there is nothing more important for our future and for our health than these marks. Nothing more important. We will participate in various activities, programs. We'll partner with ministries like Mission of Hope. However, all of these activities do take a back seat to what it means essentially to be a church. 
and are valuable insofar as they're instruments of exercising the marks of a church. As Mission of Hope is, exercising the love of Christ for others. A healthy church is not determined by then its style of music. We've got to get that. Healthy church is not determined by the vibrancy of its student ministry. How many students are in the room on a Wednesday night? It does not tell me much about the health of the church. We're thankful for Pastor Hunter. We want gobs of students here. It's possible to have hundreds of students and not be a church. It's not determined, the health of the church is not determined by even the number of trips the church takes in a year. We want to take the gospel to everyone possible, and yet it's possible to go on trips and not really be a healthy and functioning essential church. The health of the church is not determined by the collection of events hosted at the church or by the church. These events are great, but they do not determine the existence and the health of a church or any other good but non-essential activity the church may participate in. The health of the church is determined by the degree to which that church preaches and believes Christian orthodoxy. It's determined by the degree to which it observes faithfully baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's determined by the degree to which it practices, it exercises church discipline in relationship to its members. The health and the existence of the church is, is informed by and determined by the degree to which it is led by qualified leaders. The degree to which it offers constant prayer and dependence on God and the degree to which it exercises the love of Christ the love Christ has shown to us and the love now we are privileged to show to others. So may God continue to give us grace, church family, to learn more and more to be by practice what we already are by grace, the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so very grateful to have had the time to preach your word this morning. For us as a congregation to be able to ruminate on what it means to be a church. Father, we confess this morning that if we were to be evaluated on the basis of these six marks by the Lord Jesus Christ, we would indeed be found compromising. Would you graciously, patiently, but effectively show us those ways? Would you continue to grant us forgiveness where we have compromised? an empowering grace to be the people you've called us to be. A heavenly embassy, your household, and Christ's body, the church purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Do this among us, do this through us, do this for us, and do this for the sake of your great name in First Baptist Church in Powell and beyond in so many other local expressions of the universal reality of the body of Christ. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus and all God's people say together, amen. Amen.